Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 1st, 2021, and this is show number 847. Well, as you can tell, my voice is just getting a tiny bit better every week, but it's still not back 100%, but that's okay. We're going to power through. This week, Steve and I had a lovely week-long vacation with our daughter, Lindsay, her husband, Nolan, and our two awesome grandchildren, Forbes and Sienna. We were able to take this lovely vacation only because Terry Austin, Charles Goucher, Ed Tobias, Bart Bouchatz, and Alistair Jenks were kind enough to write blog posts and record audio segments for you. This means we also get to keep our 16-plus year running streak of uninterrupted NoSillaCast episodes going, which I'm pretty sure is unprecedented in podcast land. It also means you don't have to listen to this voice very much. Let's get started and we'll take off with Terry Austin. Hello, fellow castaways. Professor Terry Austin here with a problem to be solved and a review for the solution. As an online professor and education consultant, I spend a lot of time at my workstation. At that workstation, I've got a 2020 16-inch MacBook Pro that sits on a stand to my left. A 34-inch curved HP Envy monitor sits right in front of me. An Apple Magic keyboard with numeric keypad, that sucker's wide, and an Apple Magic trackpad drive all of this and take up a lot of the desk space in front of me. Man, that's a lot of magic. For several years, my old 10.5-inch iPad Pro in an Apple Folio would often find whatever space there was remaining on the desk. My primary use for an iPad in this workspace is as an additional external monitor for my Mac. Yes, I'm greedy for monitor space. I just traded in that old iPad for a brand new M1 12.9 inch iPad Pro. I've got the magic keyboard for that, but I don't want that taking up a lot of room at my station, so I needed a stand. I did what any responsible geek might do and ordered three tablet stands from Amazon that look like they might work for me. They all claim to support the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. Allison's got some images of these, and I'll let her decide what she'd like to share with you all. My criteria for selecting a winner were pretty straightforward. The stand needed to fit comfortably in my workspace and leave room for my Magic Trackpad be stable when my 12.9-inch iPad was in landscape mode. I didn't really care all that much if it was stable in portrait mode, but that would have been a bonus. So I placed an order on Amazon for all three stands that I thought might work. They all claimed to support up to 13 inches in tablets, and they were all, as a bonus, under $30. That was a nice surprise. The tablets were, and these names are actually precisely what's listed on Amazon, the Uzon Foldable and Adjustable Tablet Stand 2021 Updated. The TriPro Tablet Stand Portable Monitor Stand Tablet Holder Adjustable Height and Angel. Yes, it says Angel. And CabCon Adjustable Aluminum Tablet Holder. On first inspection, the CabCon was the least impressive of all three because it was far bulkier than the others when it was folded. Both the Uzon and TriPro had nifty little arms that support the base of the tablet that actually collapse when folded. That was a very nice feature. However, both the Uzon and the TriPro proved to be far too unstable when supporting the weight of a 12.9-inch iPad Pro. So, I carried the CabCon over to my workstation and set it down to see how it might fit. It not only fit nicely in the work area... But the base is an almost perfect size to hold my Magic Trackpad. Nice bonus! 
I slid the iPad in the CabCon in landscape mode and found it to be an almost perfect height, although the height is adjustable. I tried the same test that I had with the other two, where I pressed my forefinger into the top middle of the screen with the other hand behind to test the stability. The other two stands failed this test pretty badly, but the CabCon was nice and steady. So the winner for me was the CabCon adjustable aluminum tablet holder. It works great for me, and it might just well work for you. While there might be a better tablet stand available, I've not yet found one. Certainly, I've not found a better stand for the price. So should you spot one, please let me know. And with that, keep listening and stay subscribed. Ooh, I like the way you end that, Terry. Well, this is a great assessment of the different options out there for the different tablets. I really like that. You know, after Terry sent me this review, I was in Starbucks and there was a woman with the weirdest setup. She had a full-size keyboard, one of the biggest mice I've ever seen. I think it's one of those stand-up ergonomic kind of ones. And she had this tube, maybe four or five inches in diameter with a, a tablet sitting on the top of it to hold it at eye level. It was incredibly pre precarious and it made me think she should have listened to Terry first. Anyway, it was so absurd. I took a photo of it and I sent it to Terry and I included that in the show notes. Hi folks, this is Charles Goucher from the Silicon Valley Mac User Group. With the COVID lockdowns finally relenting, I'm very happy to see one of my favorite travel options reopen. Ocean cruising! My wife and I are sailing out on the first Princess cruise ship to Alaska next week, and we're excited to try out their new enhanced tech service, Medallion Class. Welcome to the future of cruising. No keys, no shipboard ID card. Each passenger gets a little medallion to wear and use around the ship. Physically, it's a little disc about the same size and shape as an Apple AirTag. You attach it to a wristband or pendant and go about your vacation. Heck, if you like, you can just put the thing in a pocket. Assuming you have pockets while you're vacationing. Functionally, it offers some great features. Step on the boarding ramp, they already know it's you. No papers, no touching anything, you just walk right on. It's your new room key. You walk up to the cabin, and the cabin knows you're there. It unlocks before you reach it. No need to put a key in any locks or slide any cards through the door handle. Make purchases anywhere on the ship. Use the medallion on the cash registers just like Apple Pay, and purchases are recorded directly to your shipboard account. And order food anywhere. Ask for a drink or a sandwich and wander off. The ship's crew will bring it to you wherever you are. Add to this the new Medallion Class app on your phone, and you can find your family members and companions wherever they are on the ship and get directions to where they are. This is great for keeping track of kids or wandering husbands. You can make reservations for dinner or shore excursions or the shows you want to attend at any time from anywhere. No more need to track down the sign-up sheets. And you can watch the ship's travel shows or do some gambling from anywhere on board the ship, assuming watching TV or gambling is your sort of thing. So what's actually going on here? The medallion is a Wi-Fi beacon. As you move about the ship, sensors track your medallion's location at all times. For purchases, there's a Bluetooth NFC chip in the medallion as well. Let's be truthful about it. It's a tracking system. This is not a bad thing. Service staff members 
will know where to bring the food you ordered because they know where you went. Family members can tell if you're still at the pool or if you're relaxing in the lounge six decks down. Ship's crew can tell if you've stepped back on board the ship or if they're about to sail away while you're still buying souvenirs at the tourist shop on land. If there's an emergency, crew will know exactly where everyone is, and they can direct you more efficiently to where your safe spaces are. And, most importantly in these modern times, they get full contact tracing. If a passenger tests positive for COVID, the crew immediately know who has been near that person. This way, they can isolate only those people who've been exposed rather than locking down the entire ship and ruining everyone's vacation. But what about security, I hear you cry. They're tracking me. They know what I'm doing. Well, not really, no. Unlike AirTags, the medallion is a dumb device with an ID number. There's no way to save data to it. It never learns who you are. The crew have to look up your tag's ID to get your name and picture. And that info is stored in your account. Your account never knows your location. And the cruise company already has robust data security for those accounts. Once your cruise is done, your account is settled out, closed, and that data is eventually erased. Princess has pledged they will not sell that info. Of course, the cruise company will hold on to the location tracking info for traffic analysis, but it's anonymized. Your tag's movements become just another nameless data set. Hackers could get a hold of that, but it wouldn't be at all useful to them. Not the way that names or credit cards would be. Overall, get used to seeing these things. The whole system is actually based on one already used to track guests in the Disney theme parks. Costa Cruises and MSC have similar systems running in their Europe cruises, and other cruise lines are joining them very swiftly. At least... Princess's system is based on Wi-Fi. Royal Caribbean and Celebrity Cruises use a similar system based on facial recognition. Ah! So the question of whether you can trust Princess's medallion system is really asking how much you can trust Princess Cruises to use that info wisely and securely. Do you trust Disney enough to visit Disneyland? And finally, there's a big side benefit. Princess includes an incredibly good Wi-Fi internet system to run this, called MedallionNet. They're already calling it the best Wi-Fi at sea. Now there's a subject to sink our teeth into, and I will. I'll report back after the cruise about how good the internet service really is and whether it's an experience that even Allison would find acceptable. I'm looking forward to the trip. Bon voyage! Well, Charles, that was really, really interesting. I'm glad you went through the details of like, well, what is it actually? It's a tracker, but then talked about what it does and why you might be uh, getting some benefit from it. I think it's a really interesting idea. You know, I've only been on one giant cruise, and I know that at the very least, the process of checking everyone back into the boat is tedious and time-consuming, and it costs long lines to get back on board. And of course, this process is you know, kind of critical, so nobody's left behind. I'm really curious to hear when Charles gets back uh, to give us a recap upon his return to see if the Princess Medallion was as cool as it sounded. Okay, let's see what Ed Tobias has for us this week. Hello, Nocilla Castaways. This is Ed Tobias, also known as Mr. Ed in the chats. I'm here to bring you another review of an app called Home Assistant. But in typical Nocilla Cast fashion, first, the problem to be solved. 
I love IoT devices. The only thing I don't love about them is that they're very fiddly and they don't play well together, especially if they're from different manufacturers. And they have to work well together in order to do something really cool. Also, a problem I have is that the firmware they use is under the control of the manufacturer, whom I don't know if I can trust to keep them secure, since they are all connected to the cloud in order to work. So what I'm looking for, really, is one hub to rule them all and provide me with extensive programming capability without exposing me to the wilds of the Internet. Home Assistant seems to have provided something that comes closest to accomplishing that. Before I explain how it accomplished that, I want to describe the difference between home automation and a smart home. Home automation takes physical interaction to make something happen. For example, you can turn on a light with your phone, or set a security alarm with your phone, or ask a lady to turn on a light. In contrast, a smart home uses information from sensors to trigger actions without any human interaction. For example, it detects that I left the house and automatically locks the door and sets my alarm. That way I don't even have to think about it. Home Assistant provides the necessary environment to connect the sensors to the devices in your home with easy-to-use automation to turn your home into a true smart home. It runs on a Raspberry Pi and it has interfaces to over 1,000 IoT devices as well as secure connection to all the gals like A-Lady, S-Lady, and G-Lady. Does Google use a female voice? I don't use Google Assistant, so I don't know. It even connects directly with HomeKit. Home Assistant is open source, which is good, and it's extensible with large community for support for add-ons. These add-ons allow you to add interfaces that other people have created to control all kinds of devices. Any connections that require communication to the cloud is done via an encrypted interface through the Home Assistant hub, so there is no direct connection from the device to the internet. It runs completely locally. The IoT devices can still use their native apps to function, but it's not required. I actually used some cheap smart switches that I have replaced the firmware on with open source firmware and removed the need for the all communication with the manufacturer. You can operate Home Assistant from a browser, or you can use the mobile app that they have for both Android and iOS. If you want to use the mobile app outside of your home Wi-Fi network, they also have a service which communicates back to your Home Assistant app using a very secure encrypted connection. It doesn't require you to make any changes to your router, so it's much more secure. That service costs $5 a month, but it's well worth it. Once you connect your IoT devices to Home Assistant, it automatically will create a dashboard where you can monitor and control your devices. You can edit the dashboard using a built-in GUI editor to make it look any way you like, and you can add additional dashboards that are accessible from tabs at the top of the page. You can create not only buttons and switches, but also sliders for brightness and color control and many more interfaces. They are there are graphs and dials to display sensor data as well, and with add-ons you can make just about anything you want. I have a graph card on one of my dashboards that plots the wind speed for the last 48 hours. So that you can get an idea of what the UI looks like, I will have Allison post a screenshot of my user interface in the write-up for this review. 
The real power in Home Assistant is the scenes, scripts, and automations that you create to autonomously control your devices. Scenes are used to define a set state for a group of devices. For example, when I watch TV, a TV time scene is activated which sets the two family room lights to off and the TV backlight to on. That scene defines that lighting configuration. To activate the scene, you need either a script or an automation. A script will execute a set of actions and also may be controlled by certain conditions. An automation is the same as a script, but it also has a trigger which is used to set the actions in motion. For example, I have a script to control my driveway lights. Normally I have them dimmed to 30%. The script will change the brightness to 100% for 5 minutes and then set them back to 30%, unless it's after 10 p.m., in which case it sets them to off. The script also has a condition that these actions only happen if the sun is below the horizon. The automation I use calls the script when either the driveway camera detects motion or when I open the front door. That way, when I take the dog out to, for a walk in the middle of the night, the driveway is at full brightness. Scenes, scripts, and automations are created using a simple GUI editor. It makes creating the magic a breeze. If you are like me, however, there is another way you can create the dashboards as well as the scene scripts and automations using a code-based programming layer. It uses a code called YAML, Y-A-M-L. Many think that YAML stands for yet another markup language, but it doesn't. It's a scripting language, not a markup language. The acronym is actually recursive. In other words, the acronym is part of the definition of the acronym. YAML stands for YAML ain't a markup language. The idea of a recursive algorithm it makes the geek in me smile. By programming the automations in YAML, it is easier to use for and while loops in your automations, as well as digging deep into the IoT device's data. For example, some of my smart switches actually report their power consumption. I can write some YAML code to extract that data and assign it to a variable that can plot a, on a graph in my dashboard. Or I can get that info for all my devices and sum them together to get a big picture of power consumption. There's really no limit to what you can do. Home Assistant can also speak to you through the A-Lady and Sonos. I can send a text to A-Lady or my Sonos and the text-to-speech function will have them speak the text I sent. I can have A-Lady welcome me home after I've been gone and open the front door, or warn me that the alarm is set when I go downstairs for a midnight snack. I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of what Home Assistant can do, and it would take a lot longer to review it in detail than I can do here. If you are interested in giving it a try, you can find Home Assistant at home-assistant.io, where they have all the instructions and downloads for the Raspberry Pi. Like I said, it's open source, and it does have a slight learning curve, but its interface is so user-friendly that it doesn't take very long to pick it up. Also, there are tons of YouTube videos online which teach to teach you how to use it. I hope you give it a try, and I hope you enjoy automating your home and turning it into a true smart home. Well, this was really cool, Ed. I, I think a home assistant sounds like something that would be really fun to play with. You know... I'm going to cheat, and it turns out I'm going to be able to get a private lesson. You see, Ed and I are friends in real life, so he's going to come over and help me set it up.
A few years ago, we had an open house to celebrate the completion of our home improvement project, and it was around the holidays, so most people brought something yummy, you know, like cookies or wine, but Ed brought pie, a raspberry pie. (laughs) How awesome is Ed? Such a nerd in the best possible way. Anyway, that means I already have a raspberry pie to use to set up Home Assistant. But then I started noticing, and somebody pointed it out, and I can't find out where they wrote it, but somebody wrote to me and pointed out that you can run Home Assistant as a Docker container on a Synology. So maybe I'll try that too. But you know what? So much nerdy fun to be had. Thanks, Ed, for a great review. Well, this week's awesome person, other than the five people who made the show happen, is Joseph Dargy, or possibly Dargy. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. He listened to the entire Taming the Terminal series that Bart and I created, and he liked it so much he sent a very generous donation. He included a note that said it was worth every penny after his donation. If you've been getting value out of Taming the Terminal, Programming by Stealth, Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, or the NoSillaCast, you could be awesome like Joseph and go to podfeet.com slash PayPal and make a one-time donation so you too can say the shows are worth every penny. Thank you, Joseph, for showing your appreciation in a financial way. Speaking of Bart, he's got a review for us as well. Hey folks, Bart here, all on my own. Uh, Alison's off getting herself a holiday, so I volunteered to do a little solo segment. Very strange to be talking into the microphone without Alison on the other side to keep me on the straight and narrow. But hey, you know, we do what we must. So um, what am I going to talk to you all by myself? Um, I thought I would share with you the story of how I fell in love with Airplay 2. So... I've basically gone all in on Airplay 2 since moving house in January. Um, I've uh, included a screenshot for the show notes, but it shows what my iPhone looks like when I um, bring up the Airplay control from uh, the control center. And uh, it has one, two, three, four, five, six Airplay 2 devices. Actually, six, Air- five Airplay 2 devices and one Airplay 1 device uh, sitting there waiting to be used. Um, Oh, and you can see in the screenshot that I'm listening to a podcast about the abominable snowman in my bedroom. <laughs> Interesting. I hadn't noticed that. So clearly I have a lot going on here in terms of AirPlay 2. And actually that screenshot is one short because normally there's a second Apple TV listed as an AirPlay 2 device. But uh, that one's offline at the moment because I'm doing a little bit of rearranging of furniture in the sitting room. So how did I get here? What was I doing before I moved house? And uh, I guess the ultimate question on an Allison segment is, uh, what's the problem to be solved? Why do I need connected speakers? So up until COVID, I had a one word answer for that. Listening to podcasts. I listen to podcasts while I cook. I listen to podcasts while I do the housework. If I'm at home and I'm sitting down to dinner and basically I'm at home and I'm not sitting down to dinner with my darling beloved, I'm probably listening to podcasts. I also listen to podcasts while I exercise, uh, so I don't want to use headphones at home because I already spend a lot of time with headphones in every day. And uh, as my Apple devices now tell me, I need to be careful about that. So uh, I also like to catch up with the news while I grab a shower. Uh, So I need some sort of water resistant speaker um, that doesn't need a physical plug because uh, I don't want any. Well, there are no outlets in the bathroom for a good reason. And it needs to be powerful to be heard over the shower. Now, when I'm cooking or showering, I'm obviously not moving about much, so I stay in one room. 
But when I'm doing chores, I'm often moving from room to room. So really, I kind of like my sound to be ubiquitous around wherever I need it to be ubiquitous. Or failing ubiquity, portability, I guess, will do. Um, and now that I have ended up doing a lot of working from, well, you total working from home so far, and probably some sort of blend before normality resumes, working from home is now a thing. And in the office, I didn't ever listen to music because we're in an open plan office and the white noise of the open plan office was enough to allow me to concentrate. But sitting at home in the silence, I wasn't really finding it easy to concentrate. So I now work with music. And, you know, sound quality isn't unimportant when you're listening to podcasts. Um, as Father Roderick used to say, and as myself and Alison love to quote, you know, bad audio is fatiguing. Uh, but, you know, quality matters more when you're listening to music, particularly classical music, which is among my favourites to work to. So. The last thing I guess to say is that I am by far the biggest user of audio in the house, but I'm not the only user of audio in the house. My darling beloved doesn't listen to many podcasts, but he does like to listen to music from time to time. Uh, And he should be able to do that from his own phone with minimal effort. Um, And I also use more than just my own phone. I also use my iPad and it would be nice to use my Macs and stuff. So... Actually, we kind of need a solution where we can use multiple sources to send to the same speaker. Not simultaneously, that would just be a cacophony, but without faffing about with repairing. And I guess the last thing to mention is that there are times it will be nice to shout at the air and have things happen. That is to say, ever-present Siri is a nice-to-have, but it's by no means a must-have for me because I've really gotten into the habit of using Siri on my watch, so I just raise my wrist, say what I want, and she does her thing. But hey, you know, it would be nice to be able to shout at the air, so we'll put that down as a nice-to-have. So I guess, in short, what I want is high-quality audio everywhere, easy to get the audio from any device to any speaker, simultaneously synced audio in multiple rooms, should be easily available to other members of the household need something waterproof for the bathroom, and Siri support would be nice, but is not essential. And I also have a list of don't wants. I don't want Alexa or Google Voice. No device with a microphone is coming into my house talking to those servers. Don't want it. Uh, The other thing I don't want is speakers that need an app for day-to-day control. It can have an app for initial setup. But day-to-day use needs to be via the native iOS controls. Basically, it needs to be AirPlay 2. It needs to be proper AirPlay 2. I do not want to have to use a different app to control things. So how was I doing things before? Well, in the old house, everything revolved around Bluetooth devices and an app called AirServer. So I had a Bluetooth speaker in the kitchen uh, that I carried around as I did chores. I had a Bluetooth speaker in the bathroom for when I showered. And I ran an app called AirServer on my iMac in what was in the old house, office, den, and bedroom. Uh, and my iMac has my lovely set of Logitech speakers. You know, it's a, it's one of those ones with two speakers next to the Mac and a subwoofer under the desk. Nice sound. Had it for years. Still like it a lot. And so AirServer turns that into a fake AirPlay device, not AirPlay 2, just plain old AirPlay, which is why you'll see Bart iMac listed as one of the devices in the screenshot. That's actually the AirPlay app, pretending that my iMac is an Apple TV. 
Um, and that's kind of handy. So that way I could start, you know, stick something from my iPhone and send it through the nice speakers on my iMac when I'm upstairs. You know, it's nice. Um, when AirPlay 2 was added to the Apple TV, I did actually start to make use of it uh, when I would be doing chores around the house and I wanted the same thing in sync between the kitchen and the sitting room. And it became really obvious that it actually worked really well. Like it was quick and easy to do, just have the two sources and they were perfectly in sync. It just, I was like, oh, this is actually good. But having to have two televisions running to listen to a podcast is simply unconscionable in an age where we're trying to be good to the environment. So really, it's AirPlay 2 is what I needed. And, you know, why AirPlay 2? Well, the instantaneously available, you know, just it's just right there in Control Center on iOS, and it's soon going to be on the Mac too. That's just so handy. It's really quick and reliable to connect every time. Way more, you know, reliable than Bluetooth and faster too. And the sync between multiple speakers is just perfect. It's also really easy to adjust the relative volume between your speakers, as well as just the volume overall, so that they all go up together or you you tweak them individually. It's just, it's a nice, it's a really pleasant way of controlling sound. It's just AirPlay 2 just works really well. So what have I done in the new house? Well, Obviously, started off by uh, making sure the house had all of the important bits and bobs, furniture, white goods, all the mundane domestic stuff. And then when that was done, I was pleased to find there was a little bit of money left in the budget. So I figured the time had come for me to dip my toe into the connected speaker world. By that stage, we had seen the HomePod Mini, um, but Apple was spectacularly slow at getting that device rolled out to the rest of the world. Like, yeah, they released it in America pretty quick and maybe in one or two other countries, but Ireland did not have it. And there was no sign of it coming. So by February, I just lost patience. I was like, no, I'm done waiting. You know, waiting for God. Oh, goodness only knows when this is ever going to happen. So I figured I needed to try a different brand. And frankly, the only other brand that I've heard universally good things about from fellow Apple users who I trust is Sonos. So I figured I'd give them a go. Now, I didn't know if I would like Sonos. So I figured that, you know, I'd buy one to start with. Now, I should note that in the old house, I had to work from my bedroom which meant that my iMac was available to play music while I worked. Uh, thankfully, the new house has enough room for there to be a dedicated home office. Um, well, okay, I say dedicated. It's also the guest bedroom, but with the joys of a converting sofa couch or bed sofa thing, it, it doesn't look like a bedroom until someone needs to use it as a bedroom, so it's great. Uh, but now I had to listen to music on the tinny laptop speakers for my on my work laptop. Yeah, that's not as nice as listening to my nice Logitech speakers. So I was like, ick, want something better. So what I really wanted was something that could be permanently plugged in, at least to power, so I didn't have to worry about charging, but do you think it needed to fill the whole room with good, rich sound? Uh, And I didn't want Google or Alexa. And if it happened to have an Ethernet jack, all the better. Save faffing about with Wi-Fi. Uh, So a quick look on the Sonos website made it pretty clear to me that the ideal product for me was a Sonos One, and that came in a choice of black or white, and looking at the furniture in the office, I went, black it shall be. So I bit the bullet, and the thing arrived very promptly, and 
I have to say, I have never had a more Apple-like experience from a company that wasn't Apple. The packaging was extremely well thought out as I was unboxing it. Just You just got this feeling that Sonos sweat the details. It was, you know, no faffing about for scissors with difficult things to open. There were pulls and tabs and clear instructions. It was just easy like it should be. It was also efficient packaging, not a waste of space. It was environmentally sound. And the setup process for the speaker itself was also quick, easy, and uh, it actually updated the firmware as part of the setup process to keep me all nice and secure. So I appreciated that. Basically, very, very, very clear instructions at the top of the packaging that you couldn't miss. You just stepped through them and it just worked. Now, the instructions do require you to use a Sonos app, but the app is only needed to get the speakers up and running on your network and to get your speaker named. After that, it shows up under AirPlay 2 under the name you gave it in the Sonos app. So basically, you could use the Sonos app if you had multiple Sonos products to turn many physical Sonoses into one virtual AirPlay device and that kind of thing. But really, all I needed to do was get the firmware up to date and to name the device and get my network settings into the device so it could appear. And it did, and it worked perfectly. To be honest, after a day, I was so happy with it, I went back to Sonos's website and immediately ordered another Sonos one for the kitchen. Uh, having looked at the furniture there, it became a white Sonos one. Uh, and while I was at it, I also pre-ordered the Sonos Roam with, with a wireless charge pad. That's a small portable speaker from Sonos. That's AirPlay 2, etc. Uh, Sonos One actually was really good fit in the kitchen. Um, in the kitchen, I actually used it uh, over Wi-Fi instead of Ethernet, and no problem at all. Again, the setup was nice and easy, and that meant I could bin one of my Bluetooth speakers. So from that point on, myself or my darling beloved could wander into the kitchen and stream whatever we wanted from our phones, our iPads, whatever we wanted onto the speaker in the kitchen. It was extremely pleasing. Uh, the Sonos Roam, when it arrived then, uh, that became the new bathroom speaker. So the two Bluetooth speakers got relegated in the bin. The Sonos Roam is very rugged, very robust and waterproof. Uh, it's also AirPlay 2, which means that there's no problem having, you know, there's no pairing to specific iPhones. So the one Sonos Roam is more than good enough for both myself and my darling beloved to use while we shower, since we don't shower at the same time. Uh so it really worked well. The charge pad's nice and easy to use. The charge pad sits in the office. Whichever one of us wants the Bluetooth speaker, we just grab it off the charge pad and off we go. I also use it as my mobile speaker as I'm doing housework. It's just nice and easy. Also works out in the garden. And it's big enough that it makes nice sound. And it's small and light enough so you can carry it about. And the battery life is just not an issue, especially with the wireless charge pad. It's, you just drop it back in its pad and it works fine. Um, so basically, like the others, it was also very easy to set up. Now, there was one thing about the Roam that worried me a little. The Roam comes with Alexa. There are, There's no separate Alexa-free SKU. It is, they, they come with a mic, whether they like it or not. And I, was, I wasn't sure how much of a problem that would be for me, but it turns out it isn't a problem because there's a hardware light next to the mic that shows you whether or not it's on and there's a dedicated button for toggling the mic on or off and it remembers your setting. So I pushed the button to turn the mic off, the LED went out and it has never turned itself on since. The thing has been through power cycles. I let, actually I let the battery run all the way down once because I 
forgot to put on the charge pad. It, it, and it still remembered. So it seems to very dutifully remember that I told it not to listen and it has not listened again. So my worry about having the Alexa doesn't seem to be an issue. Uh, so that, that put my mind at ease. And so that's it. I was pretty happy, right? I had a good Sonos speaker in the kitchen. I had a good Sonos speaker in the office. And I had a good Sonos speaker for use in the bathroom and for when I'm puttering around the house. So all in all, things were going great. And at that stage, I had basically said that what I think I will ask dear Santa Claus for Christmas is one of the entertainment sets to stick under the television in the sitting room and get nice, you know, connected speakers in the sitting room as well. And then a few weeks ago, Apple finally saw the light and started to sell the HomePod minis in Ireland. Well, being a dutiful Apple fan that I am, I just had to try them, didn't I? Uh, because at this point, I don't have any Siri anywhere other than in my watch that I use. So I figured the best place to be able to just shout at the air and have it do things would be the kitchen. Because in the kitchen, you're often hands-free with your hands covered in, you know, chicken guts or whatnot. So that seemed like the best place for them. Now, kitchen is one big open space for kitchen and dining. So while the one Sonos One was able to fill that large space, the little the HomePod minis are little. So I decided, also cheap, uh, so I decided to splash out on a pair and set them up as a stereo pair, which is what I did. Uh, and in case you're wondering what happened to Sonos One, that is now in my bedroom, so I don't actually have to rely on the Air Server app anymore. I uh, I just use the Sonos One in my bedroom now, um, so that's kind of nice. Uh, and the HomePod Minis do a very good job at being speakers. Uh, they're AirPlay 2, of course, so they do that. Um, th- they balance themselves nicely in the room. They've figured out how to, you know, how they should behave, and they sound good. And it is convenient to be able to shout at the room and have Siri do things. So, you know, I mean, I don't, I still don't see the Siri thing as the most important thing about my speakers, but it's nice. It is, it is genuinely nice to have. So all in all, you know, it's it's all working very well. But I will say that while we did eventually get the HomePod set up, they were more fiddly than anything Sonos sold me. So I described Sonos as being the most Apple-like company I'd ever used, when actually Apple weren't particularly Apple-like in this case. It was very fiddly with that home app. Um, It's all down to the bloody tying it to single Apple IDs. And actually, I should say that maybe the HomePod Mini, the series going to be, is about to become more useful potentially because that cool multi-voice recognition thing Apple announced for the HomePod Minis, that is a per language thing. And that is available in American English, but it has yet to come to the rest of the world. So it's either it has come and I haven't got around to saying it up yet, or it's about to come, but it it is either very nearly here or very actually here, but it is on the way. And so at some stage, I will do more fiddling about with fiddly home app and try to get the the home pods reconfigured into multi-Apple ID mode, where in theory... They should recognise myself and my darling Glover as separate people, and that actually should make a bit of a difference. Because then it's not permanently welded to my Apple ID, then whichever of us can ask it for whatever we want. So that that might, at the moment I sort of see the Siri support as, ah yeah, that's grand, but not something I would miss if it went away. 
But maybe once it does the voice recognition thing, maybe that will finally make me feel as if Siri is indispensable as opposed to just, ah, yeah, that's grand. So anyway, I've rattled on for long enough. Um, It's very strange never to be interrupted, never ask any questions. Goodness knows what I should have told you that I didn't tell you because I wasn't asked any questions. Hmm. Anyway, I hope my uh, experience of dipping my toe and then jumping whole hog into the connected speaker world uh, has been of some interest or help to some of you. And uh, until we speak again, happy computing. Well, Bart, it's definitely of interest to me. And I was really intrigued that you just sent in this explanation of your love of AirPlay 2 right now, because I was actually about to write up my own recent experiences with AirPlay 2. My love of the tech is the same as Bard's, but my solutions are completely different. So I think it'll com- it'll dovetail really nice into his review. Thanks again, Bart. That was, as always, awesome. And now we are going to leave this gravelly voice and switch over to the dulcet tones of Alistair Jenks. In late 2020, Edge Arbits, the folks behind 1Password, published a blog post entitled Randomness or Things Humans Do Poorly. It's a fascinating article on randomness in computers, but near the beginning is this paragraph. As I've alluded to with the title of this post, humans are notoriously terrible at creating randomness. You'll doubtless have heard this concept before. Indeed, Alison mentioned it in her recent and excellent rundown of everything a password manager can do for you. But, while we are naturally poor at randomness, we can learn. A lot of years ago, I was visiting a company office in another city when the manager, Dennis, called me into his office. These were the days of dumb terminals connected to a central large computer. That large computer was my area of responsibility and he was trying to log in, but could not remember his password. The passwords on this system were short, between 6 and 10 characters, but did require the use of at least one digit. It was at this time I developed a simple method of coming up with new passwords I would be able to remember, as we had to change them every 60 days. Think of a topical word between 6 and 10 characters in length that has at least one letter I or O in it. Your password will be that word with any I's replaced with 1's and O's replaced with zeros. An example might be hospital, H0SP1TAL, if you'd recently had the misfortune to visit one, or holiday if you were looking forward to one. I had taught this approach to Dennis on a previous visit and had suggested he look around his office for inspiration. I asked him if he had followed my advice last time he changed it and he confirmed he had so I told him to look around the room and see if he could spot what it was. It was then he told me that the source of his randomness had been a truck driving past his window. Coming forward to today, 10 character passwords are not good enough, but memorable passwords are still a good idea and can be very secure. I've been a long-time user of Bart's SKPassWD.net website and even built automated actions so I could generate new passwords right on my Mac with my favourite recipes. If you can't access XKPassWD, you can likely use your password manager to generate memorable passwords, and hopefully it's on your phone, which you always have with you. But sometimes you might not have access to a suitable generator, or, like me, you prefer the XKPassWD recipes, and your password manager can't produce them like that. For most use cases, any password will do, but there are some places I know I will log in a lot from different places and I would like it to be super easy for me to remember the password. At times like these, 
I generate them in my head. Let's do this as an exercise. I'm going to help you generate a suitably random password that would be difficult for anyone to guess. A quick note here that this process does require that you be sighted, though I imagine folks with vision impairment could come up with a variation that works for them. Look around the room you are in. It helps a lot if you are an untidy person like me. Look for an interesting word that is printed on some object. When I say interesting, I mean don't settle on words like the or this. Also, try to avoid words you'd expect to see often like apple or any word on your keyboard. Looking around me right now, I can see the following things. A packet of photo prints for New Zealand's leading photo stores. The word leading is great. A mug with a cute message, you are my otter half. The word otter is great. A membership card for a society that has several good candidates, including treasurer. That last one is one where you can apply an additional technique. If the word is too long or too short, adapt it to another form, such as treasure in this case. Continuing on. A package with a label saying accepted. I'd go with accept. A letter from an optometrist has plenty, but I'd choose regular. A, sadly empty, chocolate box that gives me ginger. I could go on. The trick is to look and quickly choose the words to avoid bringing in biases, but also spend enough time to eliminate the obvious and ideally avoiding anything permanent or semi-permanent in your environment. Let's look at the words we gleaned. Leading, otter, treasure, accept, regular, ginger. If you were in my study today, you might have some success at guessing these words, but it's still a very hard problem to solve. Now let's take a similar approach to get some numbers. I'm going to make sure I use different objects to further randomise and again avoid obvious numbers like dates and round numbers. A kit set box shows 260 pieces. A battery charger has a product code of 185. An invoice number is 1075. You get the idea. So now we have six words and three numbers. Let's pick a separator. I tend to stick to one of a handful of easy to type separators rather than trying to use my environment to randomise. But you could look around you for inspiration even for that. I'm going to choose a comma this time and I will then choose three words and two numbers. I will make sure the words don't make sense together, for example avoiding ginger otter. I will also avoid gravitating to the shortest words to keep the total length reasonable. 260, comma, leading, comma, ginger, comma, treasure, comma, 185. Or in fact, reading that more sensibly, 260, leading, ginger, treasure, 185. You may notice that I've arranged the words in a sentence-like order so they're easier to remember, but the sentence is completely nonsensical. So there you have it. A 100% human-generated, random, secure, and memorable password. However, just because you cleverly devised your password without the aid of technology, don't think that this is memorable enough to not have to store it in your password manager. If you don't have access to that at the time you created the password, write it on a piece of paper and put it somewhere safe until you can record it properly. Then destroy the paper. Note that you shouldn't write the name of the site or service on the paper, just in case. I've used this technique probably half a dozen times, and I usually will continue my hunt for words until I find some that particularly appeal to me, especially if I know I will use the password often without recourse to a password manager. I can even now imagine random passwords without referencing my environment based on making short nonsense sentences like squishy purple delivery. 
but that requires a lot more concentration to avoid obviousness. Boy, Alistair, you really had me nervous at the beginning when you were talking about just using ones and zeros in regular words for passwords in these times. I know in the old days that was something we could get away with, but uh, I was sure relieved when you moved on from that. You know, it's a fascinating solution to the randomization problem. I got to say, I don't have enough energy to work out a password like that, and I'm pretty darn sure I could never remember it afterwards. You know, I've got xkpasswd.net right here at my fingertips on all of my devices, and one password to store the passwords I generate from it. I'm glad you have the brain power for that, but uh, for me, I'm just going to do it the uh, the age-old way of using, uh, using Bart's tool. Thank you so much for sending that in. And by the way, I put Alistair's voice last, so nobody had to go after him but me. And uh, boy, that must have been a shock to hear me come in. But that is going to wind us up for this week. I want to thank everybody for all their wonderful contributions. I I really appreciate having that full week to relax with the family. But don't forget to send in your dumb questions. We haven't had a dumb question in a long time. You can send in your Everything is Fiddly recordings as well, comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. Follow me on Twitter at podfeet. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. If you want to become a patron, you can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. And if you want to do a one-time donation like Joseph did, go to podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can do it in two different ways. You can go to Facebook at podfeet.com slash Facebook or go to Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack or join in both. You meet completely different people in the two places, so it's a lot of fun in both places. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.